So I've told you before, I grew up in a small town outside of Chicago. It was uh, called Glen Ellen. It's actually the village of Glen Ellen. So um, now, from the end of October to the beginning of every March, there was a potential for uh, having days that looked something like this. Now, <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of cold, of snow, of shoveling. And so 18 years of living there, I didn't really enjoy days like this. And as I was finishing up junior college and looking for a place to transfer to for you know, a four-year university and to finish off my degree, uh, I started looking towards warmer climates, and I found myself transferring to Arizona State. Now, in Arizona, there was sunshine, there was palm trees, there was no humidity. I was in. I was pretty excited about that. I remember loading up my car with my dad, and we put all the stuff in it, and we started the drive from Glen Ellen to Tempe. It was about a 24-hour drive to get down there. And when we got there, we got there in the evening, and my apartment wasn't open up, so I couldn't move my stuff in. And so uh, we basically got a hotel for the night. Now, my dad, uh, he had a friend who lived out in the foothills. Uh, if you've been to Phoenix, you know it's a valley, and around it are these little kind of hills, these little mountains, and some people live up on them, and they have beautiful views of the valleys and stuff like that. And so one of his buddies uh, lived out there. So they invited us over for dinner. And so we're sitting together. We're eating. I'm like, this is going to be great. This is such a beautiful place to live as we enter winter and, and fall. I'm so excited. And the guy gets up. The host gets up from the table, and he walks over to the sliding glass door, and he's like, oh, you guys got to come look at this. Come check this out. And so we're like, what? It's just rocks out there. Like, what, what could be so exciting, right? But we, you know, we oblige, and we get up. We walk to the edge of the, the window, and there we see in, in the rocks of the yard this rattlesnake. Now, I've never seen a rattlesnake in person before, and so I was very thankful that the glass was in between us and the snake in, in that moment. And he said, he said, listen, he goes, if you see this out in the wild and you don't have anything to kill it with, uh, then I would suggest walking away from it. I thought, okay, yeah, that's, uh, that's good advice. I'm not from here, but I, I'll take that one into consideration. And I said, hey, are these like everywhere? Like, am I going to see these everywhere? And he's like, no, but also maybe. I was like, all right, very excited, very excited to live here. A couple weeks later, I was in uh, the barbershop getting ready to get a haircut, and there was this magazine uh, that was sitting on the little table. This was before we had cell phones to keep ourselves busy. We read like the magazines, the outdated magazines that were in the barbershop. You guys remember? Yeah. Okay. So I picked up this magazine, and on the front cover, there was a picture of a snake getting ready to strike. Now, the main story in the magazine was about a guy who got bit by the rattlesnake. He was out uh, getting some wood from his wood pile. He bent down, and he, apparently he didn't hear the warning, the rattle, or anything like that. And he bent down, and he got bit on the hand uh, from the rattlesnake. He walks inside. He puts a tourniquet on his arm, and he takes his, his hand, and he puts it in a bucket of ice, and he sits down in his lazy boy, and he drinks until he passes out. Now, <clears throat> listen, I'm from Glen Ellen, right? Like, we don't have rattlesnakes up there. But as I'm reading this, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> that's, I'm pretty sure that's not what you're supposed to do when you get uh, bit by a rattlesnake. In fact, if you Google what to do when you get bit by a rattlesnake, two of these are on the do not do list. Uh, you should not put a tourniquet on it, and you should not put it in ice. 
I'm pretty sure passing out with beer would be on there too, but they probably don't think pe that's people's first reaction to getting bit by a rattlesnake. Now, his wife came home uh, and found him uh, asleep on the couch uh, in the mornings. She came home. She was a nurse. She had just come home from working all night and, and, and wakes him up and is like, why is your hand in the ice bucket? And he goes, oh, and he pulls it out, and it's like swollen, right? And she's like, what did you do to your hand? And eventually, you know, they end up going to the hospital. They asked him, they said, why did you do that, like after you got bit? And he said this, it hurt like crazy. I just wanted to numb it. And besides, it's such a hassle to go to the hospital. <laughs> right? And here's what they went on to explain. The venom... Uh, eats away at your, your, your body from the inside. It destroys the tissue. And if left unchecked, it can cause severe organ damage or death, or in this case, loss of an arm. A while ago, I was walking in our neighborhood, and I saw a rattlesnake, uh, and I didn't have the same, oh my goodness, reaction of the first time. Uh, but I didn't have anything, you know, so I walked around it. Uh, I was, and it brought me back to the story, and I was pondering the effects of venom. And it got me thinking, it reminded me a lot about sin. Sin, when checked, unchecked, destroys us from the inside out. It eats away at our heart. Uh, it wreaks havoc on our lives and on the lives of those that we love. Our account today in 1 Samuel is going to show us, introduce us to two sons who had become bankrupt with sin. And yet, in the middle of this account, we're going to see some beautiful kind of signposts, beautiful markers that point us to the fact that God wants to do something special, that he's got something amazing kind of working in the background in the middle of this incredible, incredible depravity that's happening with the sons. But before I open up the scripture with you today, will you take a moment and just pray with me for our time together? Father God, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity that we had to gather as a family to sing your praises, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of your goodness, to put things in perspective, uh, to worship you and to see who you are. God, as we open up your word together, and as we read about these sons, uh, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would encourage us in the areas that we need to be encouraged, that you would challenge and convict us in the areas that we need to be challenged in. We give you free reign as we look into your word to do your work in our hearts. God, just move me out of the way. Say what you need said today. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. So our account starts in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, the, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So who are these sons? Are they identified? They, they are later in Samuel. They're identified in chapter 4. It's Phineas and Hafni. Now, it's not to be confused with these guys. 
But uh, these sons were worthless men. Now, when you look at that word, they're worthless, uh, it, it's actually, it can be translated uh, sons of Belial. Now, Belial was an Old Testament word that uh, they used as a personification of evil. You may have remembered it uh, back before when Hannah was in front of Eli and saying, listen, I'm not a daughter of Belial. I, I, I'm not worthless, right? I, I, I'm, I'm coming because I've I'm, got I'm concerns on my heart. Now, contrast with these guys, these guys were actually described as worthless. In other words, their character was drawn more from destruction, from wickedness, from rebellion. Uh, you can trace it back to the source right here in the verse. The verse gives us the reason why their character is born of those things. And it's because they did not know the Lord. In other words, they were kind of like Pharaoh. When Pharaoh was faced with Moses and, and said, hey, you got to let my people go, the Lord says this, he's like, I, I don't know the Lord. Pharaoh was out of ignorance. Uh, these guys, their reaction and their response to the Lord was out of defiance. They had every opportunity to know them. They had every opportunity to follow him. And they were like, nope, don't want none of that. I can't be bothered. And so their, their root there, was their posture was more of defiance. These were pastors who didn't believe in God. They had training, but they had no regard for God. They were religious guys, but they were godless guys. They would show up, they would put their body in church, but they never really regarded the Lord. They never really trusted the Lord. They never got to know the Lord. These sons lived in wickedness. They lived in wickedness. Now, an Old Testament reader, when they were reading this, this account is meant to shock us. It, it, it's meant for us to look at this and go, no way in this moment. Uh, this was Israel. This was the nation that was chosen by God out of the entire earth to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. And the town that this takes place in, this is Shiloh. Now, Shiloh at that time in, in Israel's history was where the temple resided. In other words, where the presence of God resided that this was taking place. And as you read this account, and as you see this, or you, you go, oh, I can't believe this. This nation that was supposed to be a blessing to the other nations, and this town that was really the central place of where God was residing among his people, this is where this wickedness, this is where this evil was taking place. And it's meant to shock us. They were brazen, they were defiant, they were right up in God's face. Let's take a look at what they were doing. Verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Now, okay, to be sure, the priests of that day were entitled to certain benefits in working at the tabernacle. And part of that is they lived and they were sustained off the offerings to the Lord. In fact, Leviticus and Deuteronomy describe exactly what portion they were supposed to take uh, to survive and to, to live their lives. And so what's happening right here in this verse is they're starting to grab portions that don't belong to them. They're starting to get their barbecue fork out and stick it in all the different pots and places that they're not supposed to have. And so when they say the custom of the priest, here what they're saying is this custom in this day and age, this time, this was outside of God's bounds. This is outside of what God had designed. These priests were exploiting the people that they were meant to be serving. And he would thrust it, the fork, into the pan, the kettle, the cauldron, or the pot. I love how he uses four different uh, words and languages. In other words, whatever uh, 
device you used to boil and to offer sacrifice, they would come by and be like, I'll get some from that pot, I'll get some from that pot. It didn't matter. They were indiscriminate. They were taking what wasn't theirs. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. These young priests were greedy. They were lazy. And at times, they didn't even do their own dirty work, but they had servants do it for them. The servant would poke the three-pronged fork into any and every uh, cooking pot at hand. And all that was found, that priest would take for himself. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, let, let me burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, 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 you must give it to me now. If not, I'll take it by force. What that verse is telling us is that the people knew what the Lord required. The people knew what was supposed to be happening. The fat was reserved for the Lord. It was supposed to be uh, sacrificed to the Lord. The priest had no business getting what was the Lord's. And, and so the people understood this, and they came before, and they're like, oh, I, I, I don't think this is right. I don't, I don't think you're supposed to have this. You kind of see this progression happening, right? They go with their little greedy forks, and they're like, I'll just take a little bit more. I'll just take some pieces that I'm not supposed to. That works out, and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to take it before it gets burned. I'm going to take it before it gets sacrificed. I'm going to take what's the Lord's. And you see them walking in sin, and, and sin just increasing. They are taking and they are stealing from everyone. They are bullying their way in, sticking their little barbecue forks in everything. Before the fat was burned, all that fat belonged to the Lord. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's a progression that takes place with sin. When we become okay with a little bit, the next step isn't so far away. They looked and they're like, well, if we're going to take what I want, why wait? I'll just take it when it's raw. I'll just take it. I can sell that. I can make some money off of this. Their sin progresses and expands. In fact, we see it continue to expand in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And so they move from stealing a little bit to stealing more. To now sexual immorality. To now abuse. The women that were at the temple, they were, uh, they were dedicated to serving at the religious ceremonies at the temple. And the priests were abusing them. This is not a pretty picture of what is happening in the tabernacle in Israel. There is sin flowing from every crevice and every corner from these guys' lives. They were abusing God's people. In a place where it should be safe, right? They were abusing God's people in a place where they should be able to freely worship. They were abusing God's people in the one place they should be able to trust. These guys were the worst possible leaders you could imagine. The sons lived in wickedness. 
The people and the community bore the weight of the sin. They suffered as a result of it. And as a result, you really didn't want to go to the temple anymore. You didn't want to go and sacrifice because you knew you had to deal with these men. And they were turning people away from God. When I was in seminary, I had this one professor that was kind of our favorite professor of the entire place, right? You, 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 if you went to college or graduate school, you probably have a professor that you can remember that you loved going to their class, that you loved studying with them. Uh, this was that guy. His name was uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher. And he taught all of our doctrine classes, uh, our, our hermeneutics classes. And, and this is a guy, he would just open up the Bible and then just start talking with no notes. And he just, he, it just oozed from his pores like he just knew it. And, you know, you're, you're feverishly taking notes. And I, I remember I kept coming home and talking to Cole and be like, you won't believe what I learned. Oh, my goodness, this was so great. Check this verse. Oh, no way. And it was one of those things where you could hardly keep up with him. My second semester, I had two classes with him, and I was so excited. He would show up to class in those, two, in those two semesters, and he changed how he started the class. He would bring in this stack of letters, and he'd kind of pull it out of his briefcase, and he would say, uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to start with a letter today. And we're like, it's your class. You can pretty much do what you want. Sure, start with a letter. And so we kind of, you know, we're buckling in for this first letter, thinking it's going to be encouraging. And, and he starts reading this letter, and he began to read the most depressing letter of destruction of a church because of the, uh, the actions of its leaders. And so he, uh, as a seminary prof, he would get these elders sometimes that would write him and say, hey, this has happened in our church, and it is blown up, and it, uh, there is a wave of destruction. What do we do? Or he'd get uh, letters from his old students who would, who would write him and say, uh, my senior pastor is involved in this. I, don't, I, I feel like that's wrong, and there's some... And he would read these letters to us, right? He would leave out the names. He would just read the stories. And as he concluded each letter, he would look up and he would say, Men, women, guard your hearts and minds, or I may be reading your story one day. Then he would take a pause. And you go, okay, if you turn to page 75 in your textbooks, and you're like, no, how do you go from that to that? Like, it's just this shift. What are you doing? And so day, three, day two comes by, he reads another letter. Day three comes by, he reads another letter. Day four comes by, another letter. Day five, we're like, uh, excuse me, Dr. Rodmacher. We finally like raise our hand and we're like, why? why? Why are you reading these letters? Why are we starting every class like this? It, it's not encouraging, man. Like, what's, what's going on? He just looked at us and he said, the battle is real. The struggle is huge. I want you to understand what's at stake when you mistreat the people in the roles that God is going to place you. Put markers in your life now that force you to wake up and run back to Jesus as fast as you get off track. Put people in your life now who are willing to speak truth to you and to tell you, man, you are off. You need to change. You need to get right. The sons lived in wickedness. Now, it's so easy to approach this passage and to be, look down at those sons and be like, I can't believe those guys. I mean, how could they do that? Ugh. But here's the truth. And this is part of why uh, I struggle preaching. 
Mark gave me this passage and was like, hey, we're going to do 1 Samuel. I'm like, oh, I love 1 Samuel. Like, yeah, totally, I'm in. He's like, okay, you got October 2nd. I'm like, great. Uh, this week I opened up and I looked at the passage on the little spreadsheet and I'm like, oh, I got this one. I started reading it. And inevitably what happens when you start looking at a passage like this and you're like, man, I can't believe these guys. God goes, oh, really? Hey, how about that anger that you got going on towards that person that did blah, blah, blah? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not, it's not as bad as that, right? I, I'm just over here in the first pot. I mean, it's not, I'm not like, I'm not down there yet, right? But the truth is this. Their lives are warnings to us. Because deep in my heart is a capacity to walk over others, to get what I want in selfishness. There's a capacity to let anger and greed and wicked, wickedness fester. And so the truth is, I don't look down on Eli's sons. I look inside. And I ask the Lord, oh man, am I starting down a path I'm not supposed to be on? I don't want to just place ice on this and stick my hand in the bucket and ignore it and numb it. And so that leads me to this question. What wickedness, what sin are you okay with? Ah, uh, you know, it's just a little habit. I mean, it's... Uh. What sin are you content to just stick in the ice bucket and ignore? Their lives are a warning. Their lives are a red flag to us. The sons lived in wickedness. Verse 23, And he, he being Eli, said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of all your evil dealings from all these people. Uh, we're told in the story, Eli knew. People complained. People were like, uh, listen, what your sons are doing, I'm pretty sure that doesn't line up with, that's, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Word had traveled back to Eli. He says, no, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So he goes to confront them, to have a conversation with them. But the truth is, Eli lives in weakness here. Eli lives in weakness. They were brazen. They were defiant. They were right up in God's face. Uh, they uh, were living in a powerful and perverse form of greed and sexual immorality. They were using their position to exploit others. And Eli, who's in charge of the priests, goes easy on them. Goes, oh, you guys shouldn't do that. Rather than remove them from their position. Eli says this, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli is the head priest, and he doesn't have him removed. It's not as much, okay, sometimes we look at this as uh, it's Eli, and then it's his sons, and we go, man, what if my son or daughter goes off track. It's not as much the son to the, to, uh, or the parent to the son. It's the fact that they, they are in position of responsibility over uh, the temple, over the tabernacle. And they have this authority, and Eli needs to remove them from that so they don't affect other people's walks. The truth is, each generation is going to choose whether it wants to follow God or not, whether it wants to obey the Lord or not. 
But if they decide not to, we don't say, hey, that's great, you're in charge of the church, right? And this is what was happening here. And God had had enough. And his wrath is going to move. Now you might read that and go, wow, that sounds really harsh. But is it? These are guys that have destroyed the faith. Uh, They have destroyed the expression of love and devotion of many people. People who came to the temple to worship and they're like, listen, forget about God, it's all about me, right? There's, There's this incredible arrogance in that. They have harmed God's people and God's not gonna stand by. Please don't mistake God for a grandfather with the smile, the wink, and the nod. He hates injustice. When we think of God's wrath, it's, it's, it's not really God in a bad mood. It's not that he didn't have enough coffee this morning. It's not that he has low blood sugar. His wrath is a constant and settled opposition to sin. He hates sin because he knows what it produces in our lives. He knows how it destroys us from the inside. And so his wrath moves against it. Because he wants what's best for us. Because he loves us. The truth is, the human race has a sin problem. Theological training is not going to solve what's wrong with the human race. The next election is not going to solve what's wrong with the human race. Education, as great as it is, is not going to solve what's wrong with the human race. It's a sin problem. Only God can solve it. Only he can provide the change of a heart that is required. Only God can do that. In the midst of this scene, uh, it's kind of depressing to read this, right? And look at this point in Israel's history. But in the midst of this scene, where we get their progression from this sin to this sin to this sin, in the middle of it, God drops these verses in amongst the story that are meant to remind us, that are meant to encourage us that he is working behind the scenes, that he has something better in store, that he has a uh, new branch starting. And that's the worship of Samuel. Now, it's interesting, this week uh, I was texting back and forth. I have a buddy who's a pastor down in Fort Myers. I told a fishing story about him a few weeks ago. And uh, he texts me earlier in the week. He's like, are you ready for this? You know, because it was forecasted to hit us. And, and then when it made the turn, I'm like, uh, are you ready for this? Right? He sent me a picture of, you know, 20 inches in his uh, downstairs as they are hunkered down in the upstairs of his building as the storm is passing over Sanibel and onto where he lives uh, in the evacuation zone that he stayed in. Um, <clears throat> And here's what he's, we've been texting back and forth, and here's the really cool thing about it. He's been texting me and going, you know what, in the middle of this, God has been so good. Uh, As he's looked at his church and and how they're serving each other, as he's seen little moments of God's goodness and faithfulness, and he's like, I know we had some destruction, I know we had an incredible storm, but yet there's so many markers that God just surprises us with and encourages us with. The story is like that. I love that Darnesha got up here and talked about in the middle of the storm we were worshiping. Because that's what we see Samuel doing. Samuel lives in worship. This is his response. Uh, Worship is an understanding of our worth in light of God's worth. 
We see him pursuing the Lord. We see him serving the Lord. We see him ministering before the Lord. We see him trusting the Lord. Verse 11, when Elkaniah went home to Ramah, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And so right before we're introduced to the sons, we see that Samuel, God just wants us to know, here's a signpost. I'm doing something new. I'm doing something fresh. I'm going to show you something that's kind of ugly that happened, which I love about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It pretty much tells us what happened, right? <clears throat> and then you move to the story of the sons. And then he drops in again at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Now, the linen ephod, this was a simple garment worn by priests. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a huge contrast between Eli's sons. Uh, you have uh, the sons abusing their position as priests, and you have the young man, young boy, who is doing what priests are meant to do. He looks like a priest is meant to look. Uh, he's wearing that robe. In fact, you're going to see as we continue our study in 1 Samuel, you're going to see that he is known by those clothes. Not this one, he outgrew it, but other robes, right? He, wear, he wore the robe, and he's known for it. His mother used to make for him this little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. They would make that 18-mile journey up to Shiloh to sacrifice, and his mother uh, would encourage him. Uh, she would bring an annual present of, of a new robe, uh, one that's a little bit larger. She wanted to encourage the dedication that her son had to God. Here's a side note. If you have young kids that are beginning to respond to the Lord, that are beginning to worship him, that are beginning to uh, follow after him, that are beginning to come alive inside as they go to the children's ministry and, and hear the accounts and the stories. Man, all I can tell you is this. Encourage it. Uh, breathe life into it. Make sacrifices for it. Make it as important. I think sometimes we get a little bit nervous when our kids come back with a lesson and we're like, oh, yeah, I I haven't mastered that one. I don't want you to talk about that in the home. And we kind of ignore it. But rather, breathe into it. Breathe life into it. Encourage it. This is what she did. He pops back in again in verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. This is an incredibly delightful expression, especially when you had the boys who did not know the Lord. And now you have Samuel who's growing into the presence of the Lord. He's growing up with God. Now, it's true, and we're going to see as we continue to study this book, that Samuel's relationship with the Lord is going to continue to grow and mature. He has some, some space to go. But it's encouraging to see at this stage that God is beginning to do something new in Israel. Now, the boy Samuel in verse 26 continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I love the way the story's put together. You see God doing something beautiful as, as his, his young man is beginning to learn to worship him. And then you see guys who have gone off track, and yet he keeps dropping in these, these signs along the way that he is doing something beautiful in Israel, that he has something going, and it revolves around worship. Eli's, uh, Samuel's life is a sharp contrast to Eli's sons. Samuel's stature and good standing was increasing. And society was noticing. 
But there's a young man who puts the worship of God first. While the sons were being condemned, he was being commended. Samuel lives in worship. See, when we lead with worship, when we start off with worship, uh, sin becomes clear to us. We continue to remind ourselves who God is. Uh, when we do that, we see ourselves in light of his goodness and his holiness. And sin becomes less appealing. We don't want to just sit in it for a little while longer. We don't want to just place it in ice again. That's no longer okay. Let me ask you, whose story do you identify with? Whose account do you find yourself gravitating towards? Is it the son's wickedness? Are you sitting here today and you're so far off track and you just you don't know how you got there? It's been one decision after another, after another, after another. And you're sitting here and you know God's been speaking to you. That's you. Turn back. Maybe it's Eli's weakness. You've been turning a blind eye to sin in your, in your midst. You got a good heart. You want to follow up the Lord, but maybe you lack right now the courage and the confidence to do the right thing. Or is it Samuel's worship? Which posture speaks to your heart? Let, let me ask it a different way. Is there poison in your blood that you've been fine with? You've been rotting inside, but you just don't want to let it go. It's been so long that, that sin doesn't bother you anymore. Je Jesus offers us another chance another way, a chance to become free, a chance to become clean. I find it interesting that in this passage, there was already, as this passage was put on the calendar, we already had communion planned for today. We had an opportunity for us to come together to the Lord's table. If you grabbed the elements as you came in, Go ahead and pull them out. At Bailiff, we have an open table, which means if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're invited <clears throat> to join us. But I want to take a moment and just remind us what we're doing when we come together to the table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're kind of given this theological breakdown of what we're remembering uh, and what we're looking at when we take communion. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, when we come to the table, we look back. We, we look at what Jesus has done on the cross. We look how he has defeated the grave. We look at how he has paid the price for our sins. He's given us a way to have a relationship with God. And he removes our sin from us as we place our faith and trust in him. And so one of the beautiful things of communion is we remember, we look back at what Jesus has done. But we also get to look forward. Uh, where one day we will be with Jesus. 
where we won't feel the effects of sin, either ours or those around us anymore. Sin will be removed from our presence. It won't be a struggle for us. Uh, we will be glorified with him. We will be free. And so when you come to communion, this is, those are the fun things, right? We look back at what Jesus did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We look forward to what he's going to do and we look forward to being with him. And yet there's another look we gotta make when we come to the table. This one's a little more awkward. It's, it's not as fun. We look at verse 28, 29, it says this, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, before we come to the table, we need to look at the present. Because now we're taking a look at our lives. And we're acknowledging, man, there is capacity for evil there. And we're asking the question, am I letting this poison of sin control me? And communion, the Lord's Supper, gives us that opportunity to go before him and confess those things to him and get right with him and get our hearts right with him. And, and the question becomes, are you here today and you're holding on to anger? Are you at odds with a brother or sister in Christ? Is there sin in your life right now that you've been ignoring? I'm just going to give you a, just a moment, just a moment of silence where you and God can talk. Ask him, search my heart, Lord. Reveal to me where I'm walking in the ways I shouldn't. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Father God, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we remember. We look back at what you've done and the victory that you have over sin. Lord, we look forward to one day being with you. And God, we look right now at what you're doing in our lives. And we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before you and to lay down our sin, to lay down the attitudes that we're holding in front of you, to get right with you right now. God, thank you for this incredible reminder. Help us, Lord, as we go forth this week to be people of worship. May people see your goodness inside of us. It's in your name, Jesus. Pray these things. Amen.